welcome to the 15th episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. Now, together, we are known as the Pied Pipers of the Man Children, and we are proud members of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. How you doing, buddy? Now, it's interesting, Shag. You said this is the 15th episode of Digest Cast, and to my count... This is the sort of official 14th episode of Digest Cast. So how, how are we one episode off here? Uh, well, I think you didn't count the, the last one, the Zorro episode, right? Right. I'm see, not counting. See, that was a special episode. I'm okay, not well, counting I, that one. I'm counting. Okay, first of all, this whole podcast has been rife with quote-unquote special <laughs> episodes. You may remember we did all those .5 episodes when we made the Marvel Digest happen. So really, we're on like, I don't know, episode 87 or something at this point. I don't know. But we're going to pull like a Marvel comic thing. We're just going to keep renumbering to number one. And then when we reach a milestone, we're just going to go, it's the 600th episode. And uh, we'll move forward from there. I just cast number one million. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. I, I am skipping the Zorro show because I look at the digest cast as the, in terms of the numbering, if it's an episode where we say what the next show is going to be, then that's the digest. We didn't do Zorro. It was like its own special thing. So, okay. I say 14th, you say 15th. People weigh in on the website and let us know how you consider. Uh, oh my God. Nobody cares what the episode number is ever on any podcast. This, this is absolutely the last thing that other than Frank that anybody cares about. If Frank cares about it, we know we're going to get like nine comments. So what are you it, talking about? I don't think he listens to this show. He can't read. So it's, uh, <laughs> anyway, folks, yes, we are back to talk about a classic, as my friend Rob would say, classic DC digest. And I got to pick this time. So I picked one of my favorite genres, which is the year's best comic stories. And I, I'm so excited about this. But before we get too far into it, because I got a lot to say, we should probably thank our sponsors. Folks, uh, this episode of Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What'd you bring, buddy? Uh, of course, reprinting a story that is in this digest. I picked Action Comics 80 Years of Superman hardcover. Uh, they used the cover by Jim Lee, and it said, Jim Lee joins us for the 80th anniversary celebration of the most important comic book character in American history. Sad sack. Oh, wait, no. Most <gasps> important, important comic book in American history. That would be Action Comics number one, of course. <laughs> so it reprints a bunch of, just having a little fun there. It re- reprints My a bunch of, reprints a bunch of classic, uh, action comic stories, including the story that we're going to cover in this, uh, in this episode of Digest Cast. The page count is 384 pages, normal price $29.99. It's like trades, trades price is $17.39. You'd save 42% off. So, Check it out. Action Comics, 80 Years of Superman. Nice. Well, I went a little bit different this time. Not something that's actually reprinted in here, but I thought it was sort of in thematic because the character of Zatanna appears in one of these issues. So I picked Zatanna and the House of Secrets trade paperback. And what this is, this is a sort of a young young reader trade paperback. It's targeted towards ages, uh, let's see, uh, 8 to 12 years old. And the story is about Zatanna. She goes to the house. Of, and she's like a young teenage girl here. She goes to the House of Secrets, and she brings her uh, pet rabbit, Pocus, which I think is the greatest name ever. Anyway, she gets into a lot of exciting uh, action there. It's written by Matthew Cody with artist Yoshi Yashitani. Uh, and it, the, this thing looks adorable. I've seen some of the interior pages. It is so cute looking. And I figured, you know, there's a lot of people here who have young daughters uh, that that are they're trying to get them into comics. And again, this is a young reader's graphic novel, and it's absolutely adorable. Now the dimensions are 
here's where I'm embarrassed. The dimensions are eight by five and a half. And I'm thinking eight by five and a half. That I don't actually, is that the size of a comic book? I don't actually know. No, what, that's not the size of a comic. That's smaller than a comic, right? Yes. Yeah, okay, so that's, what I, that's where I was going with this. Is it's <laughs> kind of like a digest because it's smaller. But anyway, I, I just thought this would be something super fun. We always we, we often pimp like, there's this great book you should get. It's $75. Well, you know what? This one normally retails at $9.99. You can get it for 42% off. So it's only $5.79. That's fantastic. And it's a 160-page, kid-friendly graphic novel. Perfect if you have a daughter. So check out Zatanna in the House of Secrets trade paperback. It looks like so much fun. So I, I, I'm totally excited about this. I wish this was out when my daughter was a little younger. I totally would have been all over this. I had no idea this existed. So it does. It looks super. When I saw the link, I was like, what is this? It looks, it looks really cute. Oh, there's a whole line of them. There's a ton of them uh, in the DC line of different characters that got, have these things. So uh, you should, should be really checking them That's really cool. Out. That's great. Yeah. All right, so folks, so please go out to InStockTrades.com and check out some of these and all their other deals and let them know the Fire & Water Podcast Network sent you. Now, this episode is also sponsored in part with your support, folks, your Patreon support, because running the Fire & Water Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services, and uh, the fees have gone up astronomically, and about a year ago, we started the Patreon asking for some assistance to cover the bills, and you guys stepped up, and I can honestly say, without the Patreon support, the Fire & Water Podcast Network would not be on the air today. I legitimately mean that. So thank you guys so much. And if you're enjoying the Digest cast, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon. What's that link, Rob? Patreon.com slash podcasts. There you go. And if you um, wouldn't mind reviewing it, consider supporting the Firewater Podcast Network. And at certain sponsorship tiers, you get thanked on your favorite Fire and Water shows, just like these folks. Our thanks go out to David Ace Gutierrez and Gord Tolton. So again, folks, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcasts. All right, Rob, here we go. Year's best comic stories of 1984. Uh, This comes from Best of DC number 61. It was on the shelves uh, March 7th, 1985. Oh, my gosh. Such good memories of that day. I I can't talk about it publicly, though. But uh, cover data was June 1985, 144 pages. This is a massive pack digest. Cover price, $1.75. A little pricey for a digest. Yeah, might break the bank for a 144-page comic. Oh, my gosh. What am I, Richie Rich over here? Oh, wait, oh. yes, I am. Okay, sorry, yeah. Do you want to describe the cover you want me to? <laughs> you go ahead. You're leading this episode. You go ahead. All right, so it is a Pat Broderick. Um, I'm trying to see if he had an inker. I don't see one listed there, but I, I didn't look that up in advance. I think it's just Broderick. On Mike's Amazing World, it just says Pat Broderick. So. Okay, that's what I was thinking. Okay, because he signed the back, and uh, I was trying to – it's really tiny. Anyway, so it is a alien space scene. We're like you know, probably in some alien world. There's a crowd of cheering aliens and robots in the foreground who are all facing uh, away from us, and they're facing this stage. And on the stage, there are several people uh, receiving an award. There is Superman. There is Nightwing. Um, there is – Interesting, he's Robin in this comic. Anyway, uh, hmm. Nightwing and Wonder Girl and Babe and Hucka and Dart and uh, some of the other Atari Force and Colossal Boy and Hal Jordan and Swamp Thing and Blue Devil. And the only thing I take issue with on this cover is that the award is being handed to Superman. And I don't know that his story really deserves to win in this. What do you think? Uh, I think it's – well, we'll get to it. I think it's a great story, but no, I don't I, I don't think it's the best story in this collection. So, yes. I mean, yeah, look, these aliens, they're sucking up the Superman because, of course, they are. 
Well, it is described as the greatest tales in the galaxy. So we will get through the uh, the winners in just a minute. I do like the letterboxes, the biggest little buy in comics. Now, uh, before we get into the stories, there is one thing that's sort of unique about this one that I don't remember. Uh, there is a letter from the editor in the back, Nicola Cuddy, and they are actually asking readers to submit letters. Like mm-hmm. they're going to do a letters page. Um, did they ever do a letters page in a digest? Uh, no. Uh, I interviewed Nick Cootie for my digest blog many, many years ago. He's, he's passed away now. Wonderful gentleman. Very, very nice. Uh, no, I, from, I'd have to go through all my digests, but I don't think they ever printed letters. But I think what he did do is he ran editorials where he would like paraphrase. Oh, okay. You know, okay, well, we got letters that said this. We got letters that said that. By the way, before you get off this, the cover, one thing you didn't mention, there is someone missing on this cover oh. that's represented in the book. Uh, Sergeant Rock? Sergeant Rock. Now, okay. I understand that maybe Pat Broderick was like, what would Sergeant Rock be doing in outer space? But to me, that's the reason why you put him on the cover. <laughs> so, so he could be like, what the heck? Where am I? You know, what is that? That would have been really fun if. Sergeant Rock had to, like, you know, be staring in front of a bunch of aliens praising him. That would have been, that would have been actually, that would have been a lot of fun. You're absolutely right. <laughs> huh. I'm just glad uh, that I got to see Blue Devil under the pencil of Pat Broderick, which is pretty exciting for me as a Blue Devil fan. That's, is that probably the only chance you've ever had? I, I'm, I'm sort of stalling <laughs> in my head trying to think. I do believe that is the only time uh, Pat got to draw Blue Devil, unless I'm forgetting something. I think that's it. So cool. Nice to see him. All right. Well, let's get into this, folks. We have eight awesome stories to cover. And, you know, this, you know, I actually do want to talk about one big thing. So one of the things I do love about this particular digest is I love the idea of a young child. You know, it's 1985, right? So maybe, a I don't know, an 11 year old Keechee Baker or a 12 year old, you know, Mark Baker Wright or uh, I don't know, Dr. Ange or somebody. Or going someone in, whose name is not Baker is what you're and I've, <laughs> and I've got people's, uh, I've, I've got, uh, probably everyone's age wrong, but tough deal with the guys. Anyway, I just love the idea of them going into the grocery store and going, mommy, mommy, can I have this digest, please? And she's like, sure, honey, I'll get this for you. And they get at home and it's these brightly colorful tales of, oh, wait. Let's see. Uh, hunting and executing and suffocating an old man. Um, uh, aliens invading a planet and kind of committing genocide. Um, some Nazi soldiers executing women and children. Racism. Uh, geez, uh, a child, uh, uh, what do you call that? Trafficking rings. I mean, there's, there's some really great stuff in this that are really great for kids, I think. Hey, comics aren't just for kids anymore. We all know that. Oh, there's an autopsy, too. I forgot about that. <laughs> Speaking of that, why don't we get to the first story that features an autopsy? Rob, yeah. why don't you kick us off? <laughs> That's right. So, yeah, the first story is uh, from Swamp Thing. It's the anatomy lesson, the famous story, the anatomy lesson from Sag of Swamp Thing number 21. It's by, of course, Alan Moore, Steve Bissett, John Toddleman, John Costanza, and Tatyana, I believe that's how you say it, Tatyana Wood. That's what I go with. Um, yeah. So again, the story very quickly. General Sunderland has uh, not uh, not Ruth and Darren Sunderland. Sunderland has kidnapped <laughs> Swamp Thing and submits him to Jason Woodrue, aka the Floronic Man, for study. Woodrue determines that, due to the nature of the chemicals involved, which created Swamp Thing, the swamp was infused with the essence of Alec Holland. Alec Holland, but not had actually transformed him, realizing he can never truly become Alec Holland. Swamp Thing flies into a rage and escapes his captors. Sunderland is killed, and Woodrow decides to continue studying Swamp Thing, but from afar. 
So I said, obviously, that's a very, very brief summary of all that goes on here. But I mean, this was really the story that uh, put Alan Moore, planted Alan Moore's flag in the fertile ground that is Swamp Thing, because it established, uh, contrary to some later issue, some earlier issues of Swamp Thing continuity, that Alec Holland and Swamp Thing are, in fact, two separate beings. Swamp Thing cannot become Alec Holland because he never was Alec Holland. And that was, I remember at the time, that was a big deal. And so it was really Alan Moore establishing new ground with this title. I, you know, I've, I've read the story a few times now. I, I've never done a full read-through on Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. It's something I've always wanted to do and never got around to. But um, something struck me this time that I guess I never thought of before. And I don't know. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here asking the question. But there's no mention of the elemental aspect here. No. Any idea when that comes in? Uh, not till much later. Not until Swamp Thing starts going from planet to planet. I believe they start bringing that part of it in. That he's, okay. connect, he's connected to all of uh, you know the the biosphere and stuff on all the fauna and all the planets. But yeah, now, I mean Alan Moore, I think was he hadn't gotten to that. He hadn't thought of it yet. So mm-hmm. you know, they don't mention any of that stuff here, and it's going to be a little while before they do. Okay. Now, a couple different things. Uh, in reading the digest, uh, I had a problem with this story. Besides the fact, again, some little kid in the grocery store gets this story about an autopsy and then smothering this old man to death. Um, the story is gorgeous. Bissett and Taliban, you know, obviously did an amazing job with a lot of dark black inks and stuff like this where they would have a, a giant section of black and the text would be like white or yellow or something yeah, reverse type yeah yeah which at, at a full comic book size which apparently i don't know the dimensions of is gorgeous but at reduced to digest size it is almost completely illegible at times yes. yeah so i'm gonna admit i cheated i went ahead after I, I after i got a few pages into this i'm like i cannot even figure out what this stupid thing says uh and so i got out my dc universe app and read the same story there just so i could make out what the word balloon said and uh man it's impressive it's interesting how much the coloring's different by the way on that but uh it was so so such a good story so powerful uh, you can see too the influence that Bassett and Taliban had on say like a uh, tom mandrake like a lot of Tom Mandrake stuff really looks like this. Um, and, and, you know, and maybe I'm coming at this because of the Firestorm run where Firestorm's an elemental, uh, and Sutherland or Sunderland's in it. I mean, so much of that elemental Firestorm run is based on Alan Moore's run that I just see so much of it because Tom Mandrake drew it too. But, um, it's, uh, just absolutely stunning. So when did, did you read this when it first came out, this story? Uh, I think I did because I bought the Sag of the Something comic from the first issue. So I think I probably got these at the time. Um, I can't exactly remember this one. I mean, you know, in the, in the days of, this was still newsstand distribution. Uh, somewhat, I was kind of toggling back and forth between newsstand and comics. So, I mean, I would miss an occasional issue or get it later or whatever, but I'm, I probably got this at the time. Cause I said, I, I pretty much read Swamp Thing for the first five, six, seven years. I think okay. I've ever missed one, uh, regarding the artwork. Yeah. I mean, John Toddleman's, uh, line work, his inking line work is so fine. Uh, so precise that, yeah, and, and on digest size, it's just, it's virtually un, unreadable in a lot of ways, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but I mean, of course, when they did the story, they weren't planning on it to be a, a digest. That said, some of the elements still really work. There's a very big close up of the Floronic Man. Um, not the one where he's disintegrating in the shower, which is grotesque beyond. Mm-hmm. Very much but so. The, the, the clothes on page 15, 17 of the digest, 15 of the story, where it's a big close up. And he says, I am sitting, uh, in, in an apartment, uh, and I'm, I'm sitting in the apartment outside. It is raining. 
and there's a giant close-up of and it's just it's it's one of those things where Alan Moore was taking concepts from the DC universe and sort of following them to their logical extreme and doing it in a way that made it really horrifying because the Floronic Man, aka the Plant Master, both horrible names for a character uh, <laughs> he was never a badass villain he was always kind of a joke because he he looked like the jolly green giant in some ways and here alan moore has turned him into this really creepy guy who has lost all sense of humanity he's still got a human body but is you know the, the way the skin falls off him when he gets the, the shower is really horrifying um, I mean, they, yeah, and you talk about how, you know, in some ways this is not appropriate for kids. I mean, Swamp Thing straight up murders Sunderland at the end of the story, chases yep. him down the hall and presumably just snaps his neck. And oh, I thought he, I thought he smothered him like in his own weeds or something. Oh, maybe I, did that. I don't know. Oh, that, yeah, I guess so. That's probably because you see the close up of his eye there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Swamp Thing, you know, kills him just mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, there you go. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, I can imagine being, you know, like a 10 year old and buying this and being like, oh, what? But again, it's cool that Alan Moore is, is taking this. I mean, you can argue whether he should or shouldn't ignore continuity. I'm fine with it. Alec, Swamp Thing turned back into Alec Holland several times in the original series. Not for long, but he did. And of course, Alan Moore is saying none of that could have happened here because he never was Alec Holland, which I thought was, was cool. Um, one other art touch I want to mention, which I just thought was, was fun, is the, the opening page. Uh, the title where it says the anatomy yeah. and, and it's broke up into a body. And then there's different, there's, there's different credits. That is a um, Steve, um, presumably that was designed by Steve Bissett because um, he's the penciler. That is a takeoff on a movie poster. Oh, see, I was thinking just now, I would like to me, I was thinking it looks so Hitchcock, but it, well, that's it, where you're close. It's, it's a Otto Preminger movie called anatomy of a murder. Uh, where the, the poster so and it's by a legendary movie uh, poster artist named Saul Bass who did the poster for Psycho uh, and some other Hitchcock movies but this is an Otto Preminger movie and it's the same design where it's a body broken up into parts with the lettering inside the body so that is Stephen Bissett's sort of takeoff which I thought was very clever I, I mean at, at 12 years old I didn't know that I had never seen the poster but over the years when I've gotten to see it I'm like oh yeah that's clearly what they're aping so I thought that's just a nice little clever touch for Bissett to throw in. I got to tell you, as I'm flipping through these pages, uh, Bissett is a genius at panel layout. I mean, it, it varies so much throughout here. It's used so in, like you mentioned the close up. Well, one of the things that you did mention when they do the close up of, uh, Florent Man, one of the eyes is in a, a separate box. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's just part of the panel design. It's so, and it's so different. It varies throughout the whole thing too. Uh, and, and I guess somebody might say, oh, it's too cluttered, but no, I'm not in this, at this age of storytelling where you got to pack a lot of story in. It is so good. And it's also interesting now to read this from the lens of having watched the anatomy lesson essentially as an episode of the Swamp Thing TV show as well. Cause they basically told this, this story. Oh, they um, did. I didn't know that. I, well, sorry, spoilers, uh, for a show that's two years old, but, uh, it's, uh, anyway, it's just really good. It was, it was really nice to revisit this and I'm, I'm just even more wowed by this artwork. Wow. It had to be hard for DC every year when they started doing these, uh, your, your best collections. Once Alan Moore came along to not have him in every collection, because he was so clearly way ahead of the pack that uh, they must have every, you know, I don't know. They didn't, I mean, actually, actually, as I'm saying that I could, you could just ignore what I just said, because they basically only had one more year's best collection after this. I, I'm glad uh, you so brought that up. That was that was actually, <laughs> really, really two years in a row. And that's it. They were done. 
Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually one of the points I had. I was going to wait till I got a little yeah. later in, but I'll do it now. I, I'm looking at the 1985 best stories, and dude, it mirrors it so closely. Like here, we've got the anatomy lesson with Swamp Thing, and that one we had the story where um, Rite of Spring with Abby right, and, right, and Swamp right. Thing. We have a blue Blue Devil story in here. We have issue five in that digest. They had um, Blue Devil number eight. We've got mm. a Green Lantern backup story. We've got a Superman story, uh, all in the 85 digest. Um, what else? Uh, that's the primarily it, but it's just like, oh, there's an Atari Force uh, funny story. So it's oh, like, right. yeah, it's yeah. almost like for the 1985 one, they're just like, ah, just pick the next stories, you know, from those same comics, <laughs> <laughs> or they're all just to, that, or they're all that good. It makes me sad to think that the digest, best of DC digest, only have like a year left to it at this point. That makes me sad. Well, we'll have to go back and do. So. There's still a bunch more, uh, yes, like some of the are. ones from the 70s and stuff. So yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on to the next story. What do you say? All right, yeah, the next story is, uh, as you mentioned, Superman. Uh, the story is If Superman Didn't Exist, it's reprinted from Action Comics number 554. It's by Marv Wolfman, Gil Kane, Ben Oda, and Anthony Tollin. Uh, Superman's destruction of an ancient temple created by aliens in prehistoric times accidentally creates an alternate timeline in which humans have no violent tendencies, leaving them susceptible to being conquered by aliens. In response, two children imagine a Superman coming into existence to defend them, and he does. Superman confronts the aliens, who turn out not to be remotely imposing or even violent. Demanding they give up their plans of universal conquest, everything is returned to normal. Later, we see two young boys at work on a new idea they have for a fictional character. That is my super brief <laughs> summation of Superman didn't exist. Superman didn't exist. Part of the reason this is so uh, brief is because I feel like this story, I, cause I've read some synopses of this online that were a lot longer, a lot more detailed. And I feel like getting into the nitty gritty of this story is kind of um, you get the words, but not the music. This story to me is incredibly charming yes. and it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it no. doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make any sense. It's just really charming and you have to just read it because it works really well as a story, but not so much as a, you know, reading the plot. Well, are we going to share spoilers then or not? Sure. No, go ahead. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah, totally. right. yeah. Well, the, the, the name, the name of the two boys you didn't specifically state are no. Jerry and Joe. Jerry Sp- and Joe. Right. Right. They don't give the last name, but clearly it's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Which and in the, is, well, in the final panel, it says this is dedicated to Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster in the, in the, well, yeah, I mean, the end there. So. I mean, they don't make it – it's not hard to figure out. I mean, no. you, you know, J- Jerry's telling the kid what Superman should look like and Joe's right. drawing him. It's like, okay, I get it, you know. Um, it's absolutely adorable. Now, it's interesting too in the synopsis – and this is not a dig at you, but this, your synopsis starts describing what uh, Superman destroying that ancient temple. The, what, one of the things that's so charming about the story is – you don't actually see Superman until the seventh page. Right. Like that, that description of what happened, you, you, you're thrown right in the middle of the story and you're like, what is going on? Why is the earth like this? And they even, the, the narration even asks you, you're like, why, why are there just small villages in the 20th century instead of skyscrapers? And it talks about how human society evolved differently without wars. And it's, it's an interesting concept. I, I thought I, charming is exactly the word for it. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I think Marv Wolfman really crafted a genuinely charming story. I love that Superman has no dialogue in this whole story. Once he appears, he never actually oh. says anything, which I think is fun. He's just this kind of mute figure. He smiles at the end. I love the, the little aliens that that the Gil Kane created, these little tentacled aliens. And they're they, like not they look at all like, They look like huckas. Yeah, they do. They're not at all menacing at all. I like the smile that he gives them. And then he finally looks off and 
uh, in the final panel of Superman. This story does feature an appearance by your favorite Firestorm. We don't get to see much of that. You don't see Firestorm much in these digests, but he does have a one-panel appearance in this story. He does. Uh, I'm looking for page seven. Where to go? Uh, there he is. Yeah, he's flying next to Green Lantern. And it's uh, not the only time Gil Kane drew the character, but one of the rare chances. Yeah. And who I assume is- that's – is that Shazam on the front, Captain Marvel? Yeah, who is that woman to the left? I can't forget who that's supposed to be. Zatanna. That's supposed to be Zatanna? Or Vampirella. If, okay, all right. That doesn't look like Zatanna. I don't know. That doesn't look well, like if we're looking at if we're looking at a JLA and we're seeing a sleeveless shirt – I guess. Um, I guess it could be Black Canary, but it just—it's got more of a. Uh, that doesn't look like a a blonde woman. It looks like a dark. Well, I'm, yeah. Mm. I, I'm fr- I don't. It doesn't look like any character I'm familiar with. It doesn't really look like so. You know, I mean, Gil Kane must have been like, ah, whatever. It doesn't matter. Well, I <laughs> it's mean, okay. Firestorm's costumes off a little bit too, but I didn't want to yeah. pick on him. But anyway, so uh, yeah, it's a it, it's a it's a single color background shot. So get off of it. It's just it's a tan and just go with it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Artwork wise, though, it's great. It's Gil Kane. Uh, the the sequence of Superman smashing his way into the alien ship is fantastic. I like the the the, the grin Superman gives, as I mentioned at the end. I said it's a really charming story. Uh, and it's the kind of thing where you know it's like a one. Of course, it's a one and done. It wouldn't, wouldn't go beyond that, but it's. It's it's the kind of thing you would have seen uh, them do in the '60s, like an imaginary story kind of mm. thing under under uh, Mort Weinzinger. And here they're doing it in a in a more modern way. So yeah, I, th- I think it's really cute. I, I'm not the world's biggest Bronze Age Superman fan, uh, and I, I've I've come out to say that a few times. But I will tell you, this is a tr- adorable, adorable and charming story. Well worth seeking out, folks. Yep. All right. Coming up next is Sergeant Rock. The story is called Killers Also Smile. It's 15 pages written by uh, Bob Kaniger, uh, art by Adrian Gonzalez. Uh, Adam Kubert is the letterer, so working his way through there and you know, working the way up. And Tatiana Wood is the colorist, reprinted from Sergeant Rock number 391 from 1984. Now, the story opens with a German soldier who's running full tilt at Sergeant Rock, and yet he's not firing his gun. It becomes evident to Rock that this German soldier was hoping that Rock would shoot him dead. But why? Well, it turns out that the soldier was horrified by his own unconsciousable actions at the orders of his superior officer, SS Hauptmann Munt. Uh, this sadistic Nazi commander casually ordered the senseless slaughter of several uh, Belgian civilians. We're talking about families, elderly, women, children. Oh, it's horrible. Now, all the while, this SS officer smiled and was sniffing roses while these people were murdered. Now, so Easy Company starts going to search for this killer squadron led by a cruel SS murderer who bears a smile. Now, while searching, Easy Company barely escapes one ambush that leaves a flock of sheep and several horses dead. And after finding one village that had been wiped out, Easy Company's baffled when they enter another town that appears to be untouched by the ravages of war. But Rock suspects, and they soon learn that the town is being secretly held hostage by the killer SS squad. The story ends with the Easy Company wiping out the SS squad and Rock saving a little girl from the sadistic Nazi commander who fell several stories to his death, smiling the whole way down. Oof. What'd you think of this one, buddy? Uh, I liked it. I didn't love it. I liked the story uh, a lot more than I liked the artwork. I've just never been a big fan of Adrian Gonzalez, hmm. and uh, it's to me it's just it's just kind of dull, sort of. Um, and so when he was drawing a lot of the later Sergeant Rock stories, and I just I just feel like there's just not I don't know. It just doesn't do much for me. But the story's not bad. Uh, I don't. I to be honest, I'd say this is hard pressed to say that this is like 
one of the year's best, to be honest with you. But, but you know, okay. <laughs> wow, we really view this very differently. All right. Um, now, I, doing these best ofs and, and the various um, Veterans Day episodes we've done, I've really come to uh, love war comics. I, I didn't have, um, I guess, a... I didn't have a problem with them before that, but I didn't have a passion for them. Well, now I'm developing a passion for them, and I just feel like this is a great story. Now, and maybe you're – I'm going to – I think maybe you're judging this unfairly simply based on Joe Kubert drew all the other ones. You know, So if you compare Joe Kubert to Adrian Gonzalez, absolutely this one falls flat by comparison. Totally agree. But uh, ignoring that fact and just accepting it for what it is, I think the art is fine. I I felt really – horrible like i hated this ss officer you know when he's talking about how the the belgians will just breed like rabbits and then eventually become a threat and so exterminate them now i mean just oh and he's, in his mind he's doing them a favor because it's painless um to kill him quickly it's just horrible so i i this story got under my skin and then watching him murder all the animals and everything yeah that's I, the, yeah yeah, yeah. so when that. i say it got under my skin meaning that it, it did its job it effectively got under my skin and i wanted to see this guy dead so uh now i don't i didn't read every other sergeant rock story this year so i can't tell you this is the best rock story of the year but i thought this was great i really enjoyed the story it does remind me a little bit of like uh oh in a like a star trek episode where not a particular one but like the the idea of like there's this town that has been untouched by the war. Mm. So when they get to the town and it looks like it's the sound of music here, you know, yes. everybody's, everybody's in suits and nice dresses. And there's like a girl serving like a strudel or tea or whatever <laughs> she's doing there. And it's, you know, it's, and the sun is shining, and there's birds and there's like the, the ch- there's the church spire in the background. Everything looks hunky dory. And it is very much almost like a Star Trek where they go down to like a planet and you're like, people are like, what is war? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> maybe, okay. Maybe I'm being a little harsher on it than, than was necessary. And I don't mean to say that it's, if it's, cause I didn't say it, you said it, that, that if it's Joe Kubert or nothing, which isn't true. Cause I liked Russ Heath through Sergeant Rock comics. I like those okay. too. Um, it's just, it, there's just something about Adrian Gonzalez to me. It's just, it's just kind of just dull. Uh, and I just don't think he just brings stuff to life as well as some other artists that have done Sergeant Rock. But I don't mean to be super harsh about it. It's just I just thought it was fine. When you call something your year's best, to me, I'm like it has to really pop. And I just felt like this one. I've read some a lot of Sergeant Rock comics from around this time, and I'm like, yeah, this is about the same as some of the other ones. Uh, some not as good, some as good. You know, I just don't think this one is necessarily like to the point where it deserves to be in this kind of collection, but I also know that DC wanted to have a broader sampling of their publishing line in a year's best collection as opposed to just eight superhero stories, and that makes total sense. Yeah, it's interesting. When you talk about the broader spectrum of stories, there's no, like, House of Mystery type story in here. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they must have, in 84, they probably still had some mystery comic going, I'm sure. I think they, they may have been all gone by this point. House oh, of Mystery geez. was over. House of Secrets was over. I think, unex- I think Unexpected was gone, so it they, I wow. think the horror contingent is Swamp Thing. Okay. All right. And and, and Sergeant Rock and maybe Warlord were probably the, the last sort of oddball-type books that were out there. Yeah, hmm. yeah. All right. All right, well, are you ready to move on to the next one? Yeah. All right, here we go. Legion of Superheroes, and the story is called Guess What's Coming to Dinner. It's a nine-pager. It was a backup in Legion of Superheroes number 304 from 1984, written by Paul Levitz uh, pl- and plotted by Heath Giffen, pencils by George Tuska, inks by Larry Maltstead, Adam Kubert, again, letterer, letterer, and Carl Gafford is the colorist. Now, this story is all about a stressful family dinner, basically what happens at Rob and I's house every Sunday. 
Uh, and in this case, Colossal Boy is visiting his mother, the president of the United Planets, and of course his father as well. And Colossal Boy shows up with a gorgeous orange-skinned woman named Yira. Now, she is of an alien shape-changing race called Durlins. Then Colossal Boy drops the shocking news that he and Yira are married. Dun-dun-dun. Now, in between panels, Colossal Boy tells the story of how he thought he was marrying Shrinking Violet, but it turned out to actually be Yira in disguise. The meal turns tense as the mother asks some very pointed questions about the Durlin race, their isolationist practices, and their hostile behavior towards off-worlders. Now, Yira acknowledges the Durlin's reputation, but defends herself, explaining that she chooses to live among the United Planets rather than the Durlins. Then when you think the family dynamics are really going to turn nasty, Colossal Boy's mother delivers a treasured gift to Yura, showing that she accepts Yura. Later that night, the reader finds out that Colossal Boy's mother knew about the wedding all along. She had known, uh, she found out as the president, they tend to find things out. And uh, so she arranged the dinner and arranged the gift. Now, as the parents go to sleep, the mother hopes they can find a way to convince Colossal Boy and Yura to bring up their children in the Jewish faith. So uh, what'd you think of this one, buddy? You're going to be shocked. At I thought this was terrific. Oh, my gosh. We're so flip-flopping here. I thought this was a fun story. I like these little human interest stories. I think it runs the exact right amount of pages. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not 23 pages. It's a short yeah. little story. Nine's right, I, yeah. Yeah, nine's right. I thought this was very charming. Wow. Okay. See, I'm totally in the other spot. I, mean, I like the slice of life. I like that aspect of it. But the story itself, like – now, now, the whole thing with Colossal Boy marrying Yura, now that happened outside. This isn't where that happened. I mean, that all happened outside of this. So this is just him explaining it to his parents. But I have a lot of, first of all, it's George Tuska in the in the mid-'80s. So, yeah, I'm, I'm already not on board. And give me some stuff for his that are, you know, much older. Sure thing. But uh, this era, not my favorite for George. And then the story is so strange. Like, I get what they're trying to Go on. And I even read a, there was a, I was reading an extract from a book, a book called Krakow to Krypton Jews and Comic Books, written by Eric Kaplan, where it talks about the Jewish faith and comic, Jewish faith and comics. And they state that this comic specifically was Paul Levitt's way of saying that interfaith relationships will still be an issue in the Jewish com- community a thousand years from now. And that, you know, assuming that's accurate, that does make perfect sense. That is what this story is about, is that interfaith relationships are, are troubling to families. Um, and I don't like that aspect of it. But the the mother is so uh, hostile to Yura, and she just keeps attacking the Durlin race, keeps complaining about it. Like, Yura defends herself, and the mom just gets right back on it. She won't let it go. And then when you think it's a finally about to blow up because these security guards bring something in, you're thinking, okay, here we go. The mom suddenly gives Yira a gift. I don't feel like there's anything in the story where the mother showed that she was accepting of Yira, other than like, you know, bitch, 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 complain, 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 bitch, bitch, bitch. Oh, here's a present. It's like I didn't feel there was a a genuine moment where the mom goes, hey, you know, I know I gave you a hard time, but I accept you as part of our family. I I don't – I didn't really feel that. Hmm. Okay. That's fair. I can see that. So – um. Yeah, not my favorite. I, I love a lot of the concepts, but the execution just wasn't. I, that's probably the best way to put it. I love the concepts. The execution wasn't my favorite. I agree that George Tuska doing superheroes in the 80s is not, you know, 
that great. Uh, I well, think he's they, really just doing people in this one, though. I yeah, mean, well, I mean, but just the costumes, I just think. But, okay. But 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 they get Larry Molstead was a, was a you know I think the regular Legion inker. So I mean, it helps kind of bring it across to give it a little more of a cohesive look. Again, I may be. I, it's funny. I'm the one defending the Legion story here. Right. Uh, I know. I, I, I was mean, thinking. I was thinking. Doctor Ange and uh, Little Russell Burbage and Derek. Everyone, everyone the Legion super bloggers is going to like hate mail me now. Yeah, well, they should. They should just do that anyway. That's not the story. Um, one of the reasons, again, I may be, I'm being extra kind to it is the title, Guess What's Coming to Dinner, which sure. is obviously a play on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I like that movie, uh, but it, it's a similar thing. And then that movie is a bunch of people that fight really hard against this interracial uh, relationship. And then everybody just kind of does a turn and, from, I think from our modern eyes, you kind of go, boy, that was a sudden turn. Well, yeah, it is, but it just kind of works that way anyway. So when the, the, the Castle Boys mom does that, it doesn't bother me as much here. I don't know. Like I said, I, I think because it's so short and it's so clearly just meant to be a little slice of life that I was a lot more forgiving of it. And I don't, I like, did, I mean, did the Legion series have lots of these slice of life or was this unusual? Because I'd like to read more of these kinds of like, what do the Legion of Superheroes do when they're not being Legion of? I I, I can't actually answer that question about okay. this particular era because my era is is about five years after this, okay. uh, specifically right. the five years later era. But that's my era, uh, so I'm very familiar with what happened in this era, and I've read a lot of trade paperbacks, but I. I don't really know of it issue by issue and how it all fits together other than like the mythology rather than specific stories. So I can't answer that question. Okay. No, that's it. I thought this was, I thought this was cute. I did. If only we knew some people who did uh, Legion blogging that could answer these questions. Mm. <laughs> all right, let's move on. All right. So uh, the next story is the Green Lantern Corps final duties. It's by Len Wein, Gil Kane again, Ben Oda and Anthony Tallinn. This is reprinted from Green Lantern number 177. The being known as Quo spends his last day as a Green Lantern. He visits the planet Minos 3 and stops a train wreck. At Minos 4, he stops an earthquake. He then stops an invading force from Krodar from attacking a planet called Viragoth. He visits the planet Elysium, formerly known as Blood World, where he once defeated a a tyrant, where he retrieves a lost kite for a small child. He redirects a meteor storm away from inhabited planet Balgus 6 to a new water-covered planet, making a small landmass. He then flies to Oa, where his ring is passed on to his successor. The Guardians wonder what Quo was thinking about, and we learn uh, his last thoughts as a Green Lantern were, it was quite a beautiful kite that he found for that child. And that is final duties. So, all right, uh, what do you think of this one, Jack? I adore this one. I absolutely, I mean, first of all, it's Len Wein and Gil Kane just totally bringing it. You know, the writing is nice. The art is gorgeous. I mean, really, really outstandingly beautiful. Anyone who says Gil Kane and his later years didn't have it together, you need to look at this. Because this is 1984 and he's inking himself, which probably means he didn't even bought a pencil. He probably went straight to his inks, right? That repeater, what do you call that pen that you always say he he used? He frequently used a rapidograph, which is a, a line tool. Uh, as opposed to inking with a brush or a pen, it kind of gives you a very flat line. There's not a lot of uh, differentiating to, of the width as you're inking, but uh, but a lot of times Gil came made it work. I just think it's beautiful. I think the story of like him doing all these, it, we talked about slice of life. It's, it's sort of slice of life. I yep. mean, it's not like a dinner party, but he's doing, you know, he does all these different things and his daily routine is almost what it's like. And I adore it. The only piece I felt was missing, like I didn't necessarily understand why he was retiring. I didn't quite 
get that. But other than that, I mean, it, it's not necessary to understand that. But I, uh, I, I, I adore this one. Yeah, same thing. I, I liked it for the same reasons I liked the Legion story, is that it's a, it's a slice of life. I think every time I've read one of these tales from the Green Lantern Corps, I've liked them. Because yeah. I think they were they were allowing uh, the Green Lantern Corps stories to go further and kind of do flights of fancy and do weird. There's that. There's a uh, you know the plant the Mojo the the one about Mojo or Green Lantern. We were finding Mogo. Mogo. Excuse me. I was thinking of Mojo from The Simpsons. Pray Mojo. <laughs> uh, but no, we find out like that. You know that there's a Green Lantern that's a whole planet. Uh, they you know they they really allowed kind of a broader approach to stories in this setting which i thought was really charming so yeah i like this a lot now again part of it probably was because it was short and Mm -hmm. they could fit in more stories uh i'd like but again i thought this was really really cute well there's a long history of really exceptional short green lantern stories because it's first of all the green lantern ring is basically a little bit of wish fulfillment you can kind of do whatever you want, and most of the stories can be set if you want. You could do a science fiction type story. You can yeah. do a slice of life story. You can do a fantasy story because they go anywhere, can do anything. So it really is an incredibly flexible format, and yet there's a, just enough of what you recognize as a Green Lantern that you feel automatically connected with the character. So in addition to all these tales, the Green Lantern backups, you, you go forward into the 90s, you get the Green Lantern quarterly book, and they did a bunch of little slight, you know, little vignette type stories there too that were just as good. Well, I don't know if they're just as good, but they're also very good. They're a little 90s, but they're just also very good. So um, there's a there's a long, long history of short Green Lantern stories. And I, as you said, I think everyone I've read is I've really enjoyed. All right. Now we truly get to the best story of 1984. Um, actually, all right, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to criticize, but I am going to sort of uh, suggest that this isn't okay. What it is, I'm sorry, I should just say is Blue Devil number five is what we're about to talk about. But oddly enough, Blue Devil number six really was one of the best comics published that year. I wonder if maybe Blue Devil, like this was the end of the year and six was the next year or something. I don't know, but like issue six was freaking amazing as a standalone. This one's not even a standalone story. It's part two of a story. It's a little weird they picked it. However, it's still amazing. So the story is called Viva Neveros. It's 23 pages, written by Gary Cohn and Dan Mishkin, with art by Paris Cullins and Gary Martin. She's just amazing, that team. Oh, my gosh. Uh, letter is Todd Klein. Uh, Michelle Wolfman is the colorist. As I said, it's reprinted from issue number five of Blue Devil. So the issue opens with Blue Devil and Zatanna on the JLA satellite, searching for the demon Neveros. A long man locates an intense concentration of mystical energy in northern Mexico, and Blue Devil and Zatanna transport down there. Now, in the village of Santa Guadalupe, Neberos is rampaging that there is no longer temples remaining dedicated to him as they were thousands of years ago. Using Blue Devil's trident, now imbued with magical energy, Neberos causes two long dormant volcanoes to erupt, and he also brings to the surface his long-buried temple. Uh, then we come back to Blue Devil, who's now in Mexico, as he tries to mentally retrieve the trident from Neberos, but fails uh, due to mystical backlash. Our heroes are soon working with the Mexican military and heading in Nebros's direction. Blue Devil's friend and cameraman Norm arrives with orders from film producer Marla Bloom to film everything. 
Well, the Mexican military unsuccessfully attacks Nebros and his temple. In response, Nebros summons a horde of demons to his aid. Zatanna and Blue Devil launch their own attack. Blue Devil goads Nebros into throwing the trident at him. Once the trident is free from Nebros' direct control, Blue Devil manages to reassert control over the trident. Blue Devil uses the supercharged trident to banish the demons and destroy the temple. While Zatanna creates a vortex to send all the unearthly elements back to Nebros' home dimension. Blue Devil delivers the final blow, blasting Nebros into the vortex. And after winning the day, Zatanna flirtatiously kisses Blue Devil, telling him he's going to make a terrific superhero and to call her sometime. Woo, woo, woo. So, buddy, what did you think of this singular best story of 1984? I thought, we keep using the same word. I thought this was really charming. Uh, I never got into Blue Devil when it was out. I think I bought the first issue and I kind of went, eh. And I moved on, and now that I go back and read some of these, and I know how much you love these things, mm-hmm. uh, I, I've really been enjoying them. Um, I, I we've talked about in other episodes about uh, when we've covered different comics. Like, I always find it interesting. What do certain heroes look like when they're with the Justice League? Do okay. they look like they fit in, or do mm-hmm. they look like a guest star? Okay. And Blue Devil on that opening page where he's on the satellite uh, with Elongated Man as a tenant, he looks like he belongs in the Justice League. Like he looks. It looks to me, it looks plausible. Um, so I kind of like that. And it's a darn shame that he came along right at the point that the JLA was exploding, literally. So yeah. he never really got a chance. Um, and uh, the artwork, of course, by Paris Collins and uh, uh, who's the anchor on this one? Gary Martin. Gary Martin is great. Uh, and, you know, I don't generally talk about this that much because it's generally I let you be the the, um, the perv on, the, on these uh, episodes. <laughs> But man, I mean, they really make the most adorable Zatanna possible. I mean, just the body language that he gives her at one point where she's talking to Blue Devil. Uh, it's the page before the kiss. So it's the penultimate page. Oh, yeah. 20, I'm looking right at it. Yeah. Yeah. Where she's got her leg kind of off to the, like she's doing a slightly coquettish kind of thing. Uh, she is just unbelievably adorable. And when she plants the kiss on him and she says, oh, hush. And then she's like, you know, call me sometime, handsome. How? How do you not do that? How do you right? not, you know what I mean? Like, how does not, I mean, like, that's the kind of thing where it's like you, somebody like that says that to you and you're like, should I call them right now? Like, should I, should I wait? Everybody? Should I wait the two day rule or just yeah. screw it? <laughs> and you know, Zatanna was never, at least during this period and in the seventies, never a character that carried her own book. Uh, I think DC never thought of her as a character that could carry her own book. She had a special and she had some backups and stuff like that. But here, I, you know, like she's done so well here that you're like, wow, this real, they could have done a series with her. She's so charming and takes the lead here. Uh, so yeah, I thought this was a, a great comic. So I, now Rob already knows this because I shared with him, but uh, along those lines of, uh, as you said, pervy, I think. So it's in the name, guys. It's irredeemable. But anyway, so my first exposure to Zatanna ever was in a Blue Devil comic. It was the issue before this. It was issue four. And let me tell you, uh, Paris Collins drawing Zatanna and giving it his all for her introduction in issue four. Oof. I mean, it, it, you got to turn the thermostat down when you look at that panel. She is so hot. And so, uh, this is the costume, you know, it's, it's not the traditional fishnets. It's not the, uh, Cin- Cinderella one. Right. It's the uh, bug head design. Is it's the bug head design. And Blue Devil in issue four, I know it's not this issue, but even says, lady, you, you make that bug look good. Um, <laughs> and it's, so because Paris Collins drew her so astonishingly sexy and then later cute, uh, this will always be my favorite Zatanna costume. I don't care about the fishnets. I don't care about all the other stuff. Sorry, folks. This is my favorite Zatanna and it's all Paris Collins' fault. 
uh, Paris Cullen's fault. So uh, I, I will tell you that I, I reading this, I realized, you know, they really missed a chance for an amazing power couple in DC during the eighties. <laughs> and I say that you, you laugh, but I mean, Blue Devil and Zatanna, you can see the chemistry here. They work really well together. And she ended up, you know, just about this time, maybe a, a one year later, she gets lost in the shuffle with that whole Adam storyline over in Justice League America. And then they have to write her out of the Justice League Detroit book before they kill everyone so they don't kill her. And it's like, what if they had just sent her over to Hollywood to hang out with Dan? You know, that would have worked. And she could have been a supporting character in this book or something until she got her own thing. It just would have been a fantastic power couple. And we wouldn't have had to all gripe about uh, Green Arrow and Black Canary. That's the worst example of a couple. Well, we'd say, oh, no, this look, here's a healthy example of a couple. But <laughs> either way, the issue is super fun. The art is so stinking gorgeous. And it, it's funny, reading this digest, one thing that kind of occurred to me is, you know, the Blue Devil series started from a singular premise, which was let's make comics fun again. Because comics were slowly moving into a darker age and people were recognizing that. <laughs> See the first story in this book. Exactly. You know, the anatomy lesson is in this book, which is also weird to think that Blue Devil was designed before that story even came out. So what was so dark in comics at this point? <laughs> you didn't have Watchmen. You didn't have Dark Knight Returns. You didn't even have Alan Moore and Swamp Thing. That, uh, that, that what was so dark that they had to go ahead and do this already? My goodness. Uh, it, it only got much, much worse from there, which makes Blue Devil shine that much more. If you've never read the classic Blue Devil series, guys, come on. It's on DC Unlimited. You can buy it on Comixology. It is so stinking fun. If nothing else, just pick up the first six, six issues. Uh, those are all the first uh, Paris Collins issues, and they're just super fun. And this one's great. I love the battle over the Trident. I remember as a kid, I like I didn't even – like. So, so what happens is Blue Devil loses the Trident in the first issue. And unless you're paying close attention – you don't even realize, like, I didn't even notice until issue four when he says, oh, I don't have my Trident anymore, and uh, and Nebros has it, and I'm like, oh, I didn't even notice it wasn't around for those other issues, and it becomes a big thing, and it, it, it's such a symbol of a double later, it just, it's nice to see the, the battle surrounding and making it be a, an important part of his character. And then uh, we get a monitor segment, Did you know, that was kind of cool, because the yes. lead up to Christ Son of an Earth, I love how Lila, uh, who becomes Harbinger, she's got kind of the hots for Blue Devil. She says, those long horns are so cute. <laughs> but I love Blue I, Devil. I love Blue Devil asking, shouldn't we wait to get some of the bigger members? And there's like, no time! <laughs> right. <laughs> like, they, always have to, they always have to, like, uh, hand wave that. Why, we don't have time to wait for Superman and Green Lantern to show up. It's like, Lady, D, Aquaman heard that and would run with it. <laughs> It's like that uh, Super Friends issue we covered where Superman sat back and watched Green Arrow for, you know, for the fight for the fate of the planet. I'm like, okay. Kal-El's like, that's okay. Ollie's got it. Um, now go to page 96 of the Digest. I think it's page 18 of the story. Okay. Uh, the top panel. It's showing Neboros, and it's got that uh, single-color acrobatic scene where Blue Devil is just leaping everywhere. Uh, he's leaping all around Nebros. He's spinning around his hand. He's flying up in the air. It's very trademark Blue Devil. Now, I'm sure this is, you know, it's in every acrobat character. I'm sure we see it for Robin. I'm sure we see it for Spider-Man and Blue Devil. I'm sorry, Blue Beetle and Daredevil and all that as well. But I just, it was such a hallmark of the series at this point. And Paris Collins did it so phenomenally. I absolutely love it. Now, um, not to not to talk too much about Blue Devil. It's hard for me not to. But uh, do you know who uh, Gary Cohn and Dan Michigan originally wanted to draw Blue Devil? Uh, I think I do know this, but I can't recall. What they wanted Steve Ditko. Um, that's right. That's yeah. Right. 
That's I mean, they basically, uh, they were tasked with coming up with something for Steve Dicko to draw. And so they came up with this, which, I mean, Blue, Blue Beetle, uh, you know, the acrobatic character, fun again. It was so perfect for everything that, uh, Dicko had done. And he looked at it, he's like, eh, no thanks. Because he'd, he'd been there, he'd done that. So getting Paris Collins, though, I mean, you can see this is sort of a, a nod to Dicko style. Though with the with the leaping and the spinning and all the acrobatics, so I anyway I just I, I can gush on this thing forever. And Gary Martin, Gary Martin is a hell of an anchor. I mean, just even on, on that same page, look at the different widths of the lines. Like if you go down to the the panel where Norm is shooting his gun and filming everything at the same time, there's some thicker lines there around different aspects, and it's just. Such a gorgeous piece! Oh my gosh, I can't get over this. I'll, you need to you need to move on. I can't show. Okay. Up. Yes. All right. Well, well, let's do that. Let's move on. All right. It's fun and bright. So yeah, it's a nice thing. So, okay. Next up, uh, something a little more serious. Uh, this is the New Teen Titans. Who is Donna Troy from New Teen Titans number thirty-eight by Marv Wolfman, George Perez, Romeo Tangal, Ben Oda, and Adrian Roy. Uh, ever since she was rescued from a burning apartment building as an infant by Wonder Woman and raised by Queen Hippolyta on Paradise Island. Donna, Wonder Girl Troy, has never known her true identity. Now, with their wedding in the offing, her fiancé, Terry Long, asks Robin to investigate the secret of Donna's unknown past. The trail leads to a foster family who, after an accident, had to give Donna up for re-adoption. Donna thinks that this is the end, but Robin keeps digging, finding out that as a baby, she was part of a child-selling scheme. Eventually, Donna is led to the grave of her birth mother. Uh, again, very, very brief synopsis for a story that's been reprinted 40 million times. I think people are familiar with it. Um, you know, you're talking about, you know, let's make comics fun again. It's not that this story is unnecessarily dark, but it's a dark story. I mean, oh, yeah. Child selling and all this kind of stuff. Um, this was another one that I read on the stands. I bought it at the time. I really do love the story. And part of the reason I like it is for a very minor thing. Aside from the artwork, we'll talk about George Perez, of course. But I, I've always loved the idea that, you know, the Teen Titans, as much as any superhero comic could do this, acted like real people. Uh, you know, they acted sort of like regular people. And I like the idea that Terry Long and Donna Troy want to find something else, find something out about her past. And so they hire a detective, their friend Dick Grayson. Which right. makes total sense. You know, I mean, that's always sort of bothered me, like the killing joke where it's like, you know, Batgirl is, is paralyzed for life. Just get Dr. Fate to fix her. Come on, stop it. <laughs> what are we bothering with this? So it, it, like in, in, in other superhero titles, nobody does that with anybody who ever says, hey, could you help cure my cancer? You know, like you're like this brilliant physicist. Uh, here, I like it's like, you know, we have this mystery. I'm not qualified to solve it. Hey, let's let's hire or ask for help from like what the third greatest detective on planet earth or something. Right. Let's do the guy that Batman trained. Let's get that. So I really like the story. I think it's very involving. Uh, you know, I don't really care that much about that choice past to be honest with you, <laughs> but, but they, it's, it's, it unravels like a eighties cop show mystery episode from the opening titles, which feel very eighties, uh, seventies or eighties cop show. Uh, I just think it's really beautifully done. Well, I would say the beginning is supposed to, I think, it's supposed to evoke uh, sort of a, a 40s gumshoe noir right. feeling. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a great story. I uh, I, I, I have one ne- – so I'll, I'll just get my one negative thing out, and the rest of it's all positive. I feel like maybe there's a few too many twists. Like they find out that, oh, you know, the mother had to give her up. Okay, and she got adopted. Perfect. Okay, then – the 
people who adopted her had to get rid of her mm-hmm. to somebody else too. Okay. Then those people turned out to be child, uh, you know, uh, kidnapping child traffickers. Yeah. Right. Child trafficking. And, and it's just like, it, it gets, it gets a pretty darn complex. So like, I don't know why there had to be so many layers to uncover. Like it could have gone right from, you know, got her out of the orphanage to, the, the child trafficking rather than the nice people in between. I don't know. I'm sure Marvel had, re, had a reason for designing it that way, but that's my only nitpick. Now, beyond that, wow, the art, unbelievable. The story, the way it unfolds is really feels very natural. I love Dick. Dick never feels like he's got all the pieces. So he's even going behind sort of their back to double check stuff by going to the prison and checking with the, the evil lawyer. Um, and, and just, I love the see, I love to see the detective work like that. The stuff where Dick is doing the science with mm-hmm, the chemicals mm-hmm. to bring the lettering out of the stuff. And he says, you know, he waits for days and, you know, he, he makes sure not to overdo it and it's patience. And it's like, wow, okay, this is pretty darn cool. Yeah. I love all that stuff. I, I and you're talking about the, uh, the plot. I mean, you're, you're saying that the opening titles are sort of reminiscent of, uh, Film noir. Well, that film noir plots were purposely convoluted to the point where, you know, you could, sometimes you couldn't even follow them. Oh, okay. uh, and so, yeah, there is. I mean, there's that famous story about I think it's the Maltese Falcon that got they went to Dashiell Hammett because uh, the the you know based off of his book and and one of the screenwriters couldn't figure out who killed one of the characters. And like, <laughs> Let's ask Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell, in your book, who kills so and so? He's like, I don't know. And he didn't know, and he wrote the damn thing. Um, so I mean, I think that could be part of it. Yeah, I agree. It does get a little complicated. I love when Robin goes to jail to get to the, the, the talk to that guy, the Mr. Yeah. Harrison, and he's like, "Hey, I know you. I seen you in the newspapers. You're that kid that works for Batman." <laughs> you don't know Robin at this point, dude. Like, how out of it are you? Uh, I mean, no surprise here. George Perez does a great job. I mean, it you know just brilliantly pulls it off and i like the end too that after he solves the mystery he goes and gives Corey a call which i thought was a nice right. touch like he does like a nice little hey I, let me go see my girlfriend again. I, I don't know i it's it's this kind of stuff that that marvelman did exceptionally well the teen titans did exceptionally well and really made the book pop because you just didn't you know i've been we just talked earlier about these days and day in the life stories this is kind of the third one of that because this, this there's nothing to do with any of the other characters. You know, it's it's not some big plus like Trigon shows up. It's just the Earth's not in jeopardy. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's just a human interest story, but it's really it's really well done. And I could say this was a f- very very famous story. I remember at the time it was renowned. It had a great cover. You don't see it in here in the digest, but a great painted cover by George Perez. So I don't know. I think this is a winner, even though. Uh, you know, it's been reprinted in other places and it's Teen Titans have gotten all the accolades they deserve, but I still think this is really quite well done. Well, if, if you, if you have any doubt of what era this is in, this is what one or two issues before the, uh, Judas contract. So mm-hmm. you know that this is peak Titans. I mean, it just yeah. doesn't get any better than this. Now, also, I will say that this story, uh, is responsible for causing all kinds of headaches where, and this is who is Donald Tro- Donald Troy. And, you know, then you get, I don't know, there's like 18 more variations. Like oh. who is Wonder Girl? Who is Troya? Who is, I don't know, whatever the hell else they did, but her origin has been explored and re-explored so many times. The, uh, the only disappointing part here, part here is I was hoping somebody in her origin would have the last name Haney, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, and when she goes to visit that old lady in the Florida nursing home, which, by the way, it's around the corner from my house, uh, she, when, when Donna is in that little white and pink number, holy crap, that's uh, – <laughs> thank you, George. She is gorgeous. So, Terry, I don't understand you, man. I don't understand how, ter- how Terry got – won her heart. Just doesn't seem fair. Anyway. 
All right. Our last story is a fun one. It is uh, Atari Force, and it's called Babe's Story. It's 22 pages. Uh, Jerry Conway was the plotter. Andy Helfer is the scripter. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, name. is the penciler. Ricardo Villagran is the inker. Bob Lapan's the letter. And Tom Zuko is the colorist, I guess. Uh, I think he was part of the people that helped uh, murder Robin's parents. But anyway, reprinted from Atari Force number 8 for 1984. So the, uh, the child, we were, the childlike character named Babe and his friend Hucka have taken off in a shuttle with the simple and kind-hearted mission of helping their friend Morphia. However, uh, instead of going where they need to go, they end up crashing on some unknown world 500 miles off course. I'm sorry, 500,000 miles off course. Now, after landing, Babe fights off a three-headed serpent, and they're convinced that Morphia must be on this planet, and she needs their help. So they go exploring. They meet a small little warrior who they call Shorty Man, who's carrying around, uh, sadly, a, a dead companion, who Babe just assumes is sleeping. Now, another group of violent aliens are chasing the small warrior, and Hukka uh, and him decide to tag along with the, uh, the shorty man. Eventually, they encounter the violent aliens again, and when Babe destroys a large artillery piece located on a mountain. Finally, they arrive at the aliens' camp, and Babe and shorty man um, attack, and Babe's huge strike manages to destroy the main armory and thus destroy the camp. At the end, the heroes of Atari Force arrive, rescuing Babe and Hukka, and also taking on shorty man as part of their crew. So there you go. Uh, what did you think of this one, buddy? Uh, I, I, story-wise, okay. Art-wise, off the charts, great. Oh, sure, sure, yeah. I, I just have a tough time with a lot of these Atari Force characters. Uh, I just don't. I just don't really. Just I don't know. I read them. I go, eh, all right. Just none of them. I'm really super into, except for what it was Dart and uh, what was the Blackjack. It's because she's hot. But. Yeah. Well, I like. They, I think we're kind of like an assassin couple, like the Sutherlands, and I really kind of like that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, again, I think it's. I think it's a fine story. Uh, but again, it, I enjoyed it just for the artwork because it's just so beautifully rendered. Oh, it's absolutely stunning. And one of the things I love about the story, though, is like um, I own all the issues of Atari Force. Still haven't read them other than number one and the original five issues from the Atari comics. It's been sitting for, I don't know, as long as we've been podcasting, Rob, waiting for me to read it. I just haven't made the time. But reading this issue, everything you need to know is here. Like you very quickly understand how Babe and Hucka operate and that they're simplistic uh, and, 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 and kind and gentle hearted, but not the brightest. And you get that, and you immediately can follow what's happening in the story. So I love that as a standalone story, anybody could have picked this up and understood what's going on. So that aspect's nice. Uh, it, it fits well with the done in one. And, you, and I, by the end, I really care about Hucka and Babe and even Shorty Man. And so uh, and knowing that Shorty Man this whole time is carrying around his dead friend simply so he can bury him, oh, so sad. Um, but no, it's um, it's fun. It's, is it fantastic? No. Is it the best of the year? Probably not. But artistically, Wow, just you said as you said, knocked out of the park. I mean, because it's you know it's JLGL PBHN. Uh, yeah, it's just so. it's just the, the visual life he brings to this, and it had to be hard because Babe is not like, you know like probably the easiest character to draw because he's like a she's like a baby Huey kind of thing, you know. Right, uh, right. But just and by the way, you mentioned the uh, the coloring. Who's it? Tom Zioko? Is that you said? Who did the uh, yep. Boy, it's really wonderfully colored. I mean, that's that you shouldn't, you know. I mean, it's easy to to ignore colorists when they do great work, but like the lighting when they go into the the when they they're around the campfire and it's all lit from the flame looks great. Oh and yeah, 
there's even that one panel where Babe is running to the ship and she's colored in, in uh, kind of like a magenta thing. Like just there's all these wonderful little touches that really, again, make this book so gorgeous to look at. Yeah, it's absolutely stunning. And it really makes me want to get back to reading those Atari Force because, again, it's, it's, it's just fun. So, yeah. And it's a nice way to round it out. So that's the whole digest. So what is your favorite story besides Blue Devil uh, <laughs> in the digest? I mean, hard for me to not say the anatomy lesson because it's just so – its its effects were so long-reaching. Sure. But I really I, – I, 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 I think the Superman one is probably my favorite. I think it just – its I like a lot of them. You know what I mean? It's, I like the Legion story. I liked – the Green Lantern Corps story? I don't know. I think all they're all equal, equally cool in different ways. Okay. I, I, it's certainly Anatomy Lesson is, is the most important story in here, yeah. no doubt about it. But it's not fun. It's, no. it's not feel good. You don't get done reading it and be like, woo, that was awesome. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's pretty graphic and horrifying. So it's great in its own way, but it's, uh, it's also, see, that's where I immediately fall to Blue Devil because Blue Devil's a reaction to that kind of stuff. So, uh, if I take Blue Devil off the, off the table, I probably go with Who's Donna Troy, even, even with the, my one nitpick on it. I, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, such a great story. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what a great collection. Super fun. I love these years' best di- uh, best stories because uh, you get such a variety. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. All right. Well, uh, with that, I think, uh, Rob, we're going to go take a podcast promo break. When we come back, we're going to do your digest-sized version of feedback from the last two episodes. Welcome to the world of tomorrow. <laughs> the Legion of Superheroes through the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, the Baxter series, Five years later, the reboot, the three-boot, the retro-boot, the animated series. We have banded together as the Legion of Super Bloggers to cover it all. Seek us out at legionofsuperbloggers.blogspot.com. Why do you always have to say it that way? Haven't you ever heard of a little thing called showmanship? The Justice League wouldn't help him, so Batman formed a new team. These people of power are all looking for something, be it their past, or a purpose, or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders! Covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning, as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, the Force of July, and the Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehuntresspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are the Outcasters because to live outside the law, you must be honest. Alright, now on to your comments from episode 13 ish or so <laughs> when we cover DC special blue ribbon digest number three, all about the justice society and episode four, 
2015-ish, uh, where we covered the Zorro Digest from Paper Cuts. So we're going to start off with the feedback from the JSA issue. Uh, we heard from little Russell Burbage from the Legion of Superbloggers, and he wrote, No picture of the back cover with Ross by Ross Andrew? I'm sorry, little Russell. I apologize. That is my bad. Uh, these, these digests are, especially when we do a lot of, are a little hard to control how much, because I want to post every page. Like here, I'm probably only, when we do the gallery for this episode, I'll probably just pick like one page from every one of the stories, because I just don't want to overdo it. Uh, up next is Jim, just Jim. I, I don't know Jim's last name. I don't know where he's from. Almost every male in my family other than me is named Jim, so I guess it could be a relative of mine. I'm not sure. Anyway, Jim writes, in addition to being the only JSA story of the Golden Age to feature Superman and Batman in a full adventure, All-Star Comics number 36 also has some behind-the-scenes significance. Back then, DC was made up of two companies, National and All-American. Somewhere along the line, they had a falling out. Since All-Star was an All-American comic, the National-owned heroes were removed from the team. Starman, Sandman, Dr. Fate, and Spectre. And the All-American-owned characters of Flash and Green Lantern were put back on the team. So National and All-American eventually mended their fences, and I believe officially merged into one company. And Superman and Batman guest-starring in that issue was a symbol of that unification. Awesome. That was the uh, Stream of Ruthlessness story uh, that we covered, the old classic JSA story from All-Star Comics number 36. Now, Gore Gore Tolton chimes in. Kind of a similar comment, but I thought I'd read it. This history stuff's fascinating. If you don't know about the split between national comics and American comics, all American comics, it really is fascinating. Uh, anyway, Gord says, given, given uh, that this is uh, the, after the split between national comics and all American lines, the regular JSA roll call would, uh, after around 1943 or 44 or so, would be comprised purely of the all American stable until it disbanded in 1951. The owners did eventually patch up their differences, which leads me to wonder if the use of Superman and Batman was some sort of peace offering to the Gaines family. Oh, well, I'm glad that Superman was able to fill Johnny Thunder's shoes. Because remember, Johnny Thunder needed a break, so they called in Superman. Because, you know, that's a, one to, that's a one-to-one replacement. So he goes, uh, it's a sh- glad that Superman was able to fill in Johnny Thunder's shoes. Quote, say you'd think I could take a day off now and again. <laughs> Thanks, Gord. Uh, wow. Uh, Captain Entropy says, a great coverage or a great digest. I bought this one off the stands, and I didn't need a testimonial from Bats and Soups to make that decision. I know the JSA were awesome since at least the JLA two-parter on the death of Mr. Terrific the year before. Woohoo! I will admit that this filled in a lot of gaps. It also introduced me to the Gardner Fox pair-off, then redeem story outline. Shag, it may be true that DC tried for years to say that there was no Earth to Aquaman, but with different origins, plus the anachronistic Nazi punching, Unfortunately, not anachronistic now. It never made any sense. Roy Roy Thomas just picked up the obvious answer the rest of DC had been ignoring. It's a good thing they never put so much effort into illogical, unnecessary continuity gaps ever again. I mean, except for Power Girl and Legion, of course. Oh, and how could I forget Hawkman? You know what? I don't want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, I was digging through a short box in the Entropy Cave. I love that. Also known as my garage, a well-named lair if there ever was one and ran across the Dr. Fate first issue special. I think they picked it back up uh, as a back issue decades ago, remembering the story from this digest. I took it out and read it again so I could remember what all the fuss was about on Fire and Water. This is another good comic book decision, too, if you count the original purchase. There you go. Well done, Captain Entropy. Nice. Uh, we heard from Steve Race, who says, uh, I love that Dr. Fate story, and this was a really fun episode, guys. Oh, well, thanks, Steve. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. 
Then we heard from Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows uh, such as the recent House of Frankenstein and the JLU cast, and many, many more. And Chris writes, this is the debut of the Earth 2 uh, Richard Grayson in that Neil Adams created adult Robin costume. Earth 2 Dick gave it to his Earth 1 counterpart in JLA, as Rob mentioned. But I guess Earth 1 Dick realized he had too many licensing deals, so he handed it back after that story. And Earth 2 Dick looked uh, at that gray monstrosity that he was wearing, and, well, what would you do? Then he says, All-Star number 36 credits are a huge bone of contention to diehard JSA fans like Roy Thomas and the late Jerry Bales. Thomas spent many, many pages of his All-Star companion books trying to figure out who drew what and why Superman and Batman were suddenly dropped in the book for this one story. Uh, It was indeed the first comic book and even the first cover to feature the trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. Heck, other than the world's finest covers and a brief one-page cameo together in an early JSA tale in All-Star, it was the first comic story where Superman and Batman appeared together despite being frequent partners on Superman radio show. I had no idea that that was such a a seminal comic for Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. No, Hmm. didn't have any idea. Yeah, he also uh, sent along a uh, a panel talking about how the uh, the the panel that we saw in the reprint was touched up, uh, or actually untouched up. Well, no, I guess just touched up is the right term for it, because in the original comic, dance carefully here, buddy. <laughs> yeah, in the original in the original comic, Wally Wood, as was his wont, uh, drew in uh, some cleavage in Power Girl's boob window, and then the uh, somebody went and took it out because it was just got to be a little too much. So. Well, if never mind, we're just going to move on. Let's move on. <laughs> so again, we got a got a comment from Doctor Ange, who does the Supergirl blog, Combox Commentary. He's also part of the Legion of Super Bloggers. He says this digest was bought off the rack when released as part of my beloved summer comics, stuffed in my pocket and brought to the beach, right in the backyard, etc. I love this digest. Alas, lost in a parental purge. I had met Power Girl before somewhere, but loved reading this first adventure here. Loved the crazy brainwave, especially when his real form was revealed. As for the boob window, oh, there it is again. At some point <laughs> in the All-Star run, Star Spangled Kid creates a symbol for her, a PG inside the S-Shield shape. She yells at him that she doesn't need some, some co-opted symbol uh, when she needs her own. I really loved the Golden Age story as it was the first time I'd seen many of the characters in solo action. Remember, most JSA stuff at this point was in JLA. When I was going to see a purely, where was I, when was I going to see a purely Dr. Midnight story? And this felt like a JLA story with everyone splitting up. I loved it. Of course, the real winner is the Dr. Fate story. I have gushed previously about it, so no need to repeat. But it is so sweet. One of my favorites of all time. And, of course, my man, the Creeper, is shown in the Earth 2 two Earth piece. Clearly, DC wanted to show off its best characters. <laughs> oh, jeez. All right. Not since uh, Blue Devil have I seen someone so favorited towards a character. So shamelessly show for a character. Shamelessly show for a character. For a guy who should be promoting Supergirl, you think he would have spent more time talking about Power Girl. But anyway, no, it's all about Creeper with him. Then we heard from Edo Bosnar, and he says, What a great book to cover. I snapped this one off the spinner rack, or rather magazine stand, when it came out and thoroughly loved it. I was glad I reprinted both All-Star Comics number 58 and 59, because I originally had bought 58 a few years earlier, but then never got the follow-up. So it was great to finally read the conclusion to the story. Generally, I'd agree with Shag about the hard-to-read quality of many Golden Age stories, but I have to say I recall really liking the story included in this digest. In particular, I like the prologue that you guys sort of glossed over, where Calvin Stimes is camping out with his erstwhile college buddies and tells them the legend of the river. Basically like a campfire horror story, and all the guys speculate about what they would do if they lacked a conscience. Uh, it really set the mood. 
Uh, you know, that's interesting, Edo. I, I, I think we're, I think we're supposed to call him Ed, if I remember right. Uh, but either way, uh, or Edo. It's all, you know, it's ironic. He was picking on me about the pronouncing words recently, um, in one of our previous episodes. So I, I did warn him. I say, you know, I slaughter your name every time. So anyway, um, we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about that introduction and the prologue of that story. And it really did set him. And you're right. It felt very creepy and campfirey. And, uh, it really did make a, it really did set it. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Then he goes, as for the other material, yeah, the Dr. Fate story is truly outstanding. By far the best part of the book. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, everybody agrees on that one. Uh, David is Gutierrez uh, says, great show, guys. While I enjoyed your enjoyment of these books, I don't think I ever appreciated Earth 2 to the extent you guys did. But I'm glad to see you're finding some joy in these trying times. Thank you, David. Yes. Uh, I, yeah, I always loved Earth 2, you know? I don't know. I always – I think I, – I, I always loved it. <laughs> my my, my well, you said hard for you to say. Uh, my first exposure to Earth Two was the Death of Mister Terrific story, JLA number one seventy one, and it blew my stinking mind. And I absolutely loved it. And of course, you know what did I do, Rob, when I came across a comic that had sort of a complicated group of characters? You made notes. I made notes. Exactly notes. right. I made lists. Exactly right. To try and understand who was in Earth One and Earth, who was in Earth Two, and we know who wasn't in the Earth Two column. Anyway, go ahead. Good <laughs> comment from the administrator who says was counting the moments and seconds until the three page feature was considered Earth to uh, forever shag like it love it learn from it now hold on a minute this three page thing he's referencing specifically says there is no Earth to Aquaman that is what the magic of those pages. All right. Okay. Would love it if you guys could bring Jerry Conway, Roy Thomas back to talk about the JSA and All Star, the comic, and the Squadron. I'm sure we would love that too. That'd be an amazing uh, interview. Please, please have more Earth Two centric episodes. Any chance to bring in Roy Thomas for an All Star chat would be solid gold. Uh, long live the ex boy Teen Wonder. And in the battle of the Karazis, make mine PG as her personality is larger than life compared to her counterpart. She made boys like the kid, Firestorm and Andrew Winston follow her around like puppy dogs, while Supergirl always seemed to fall for hap- and haplessly follow the loser dudes, ex- <clears throat> except Brainiac 5, who knew historically he didn't have a shot. So why didn't he hit on Power Girl when he met her in JLA 147? <laughs> Roy, through Per Degaton, made a meta dig in the American Virgin Justice Society, but the whole black-haired spandex version Brainwave created for him. That and the lack of acknowledgement that there was an Earth 2 Aquaman, as well as forgetting about the Earth 1 Dr. Fate. Editor's notes, the world's finest comics number 201. Oh, net administrator, you're just opening many cans of worms there. He, he's trying to cause a problem. Oh, yeah. We heard from Captain Entropy again. He goes, Rob, I appreciate your effort to avoid calling Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman the Trinity. And I like the triumvirate better. My objection isn't even on her... Uh, her- Hearsay lines, like you might expect, well, not hearsay alone. It's also about inaccuracy. Trinity literally means three in one or tri unity. It's perfectly appropriate for triplicate girl, uh, but not in this case. So yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a, I, I've never thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I know. I've never considered that before. Uh, Sean M. Myers says, thanks for another great episode, guys. I loved it. I'm glad you mentioned that the new All-Star JSA collection was available through in-stock trades. I went ahead and ordered it because I've always wanted the issues of All-Star with the revival of the JSA. All all the other bonus material, which I already own as single issues, will just be icing on this hardcover cake. The Wonderful. Thing, the, yeah, that, thank you, Sean. The neat thing about this issue of DC Special Blue Room and Digest is that you have a classic look at the JSA and modern at-the-time version. 
I also think it's really cool they had a solo story in the book. I wish that they would have used this format more often. It's the same template used for the other JSA Digest published two years earlier in Best of DC 21, although the story story was a team-up of Black Canary and Starman. We've covered both of those now, right? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Uh, although you discussed the last three-page story, you didn't mention that it was actually first published in Adventure 461. That was when the JSA was an adventure following the end of All-Star Comics. The story in the Digest is actually edited or changed a bit. On Digest page 97, story page 3, in panel 3, the Digest copy reads, Thus the two worlds knowingly coexist, one inhabited by the familiar Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Dead Man you have seen in Justice League. But the original says... Thus, the two worlds knowingly coexist, one inhabited by the familiar Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Dead Man, which you have seen in these pages. Because, of course, Adventure at the time was a dollar comic featuring all of those heroes. Oh. That is an obscure catch, Sean. Wow. I was getting a little nervous there. I thought he was going to overturn my Aquaman Earth 2 proof because that, that, those pages are so important to me. They specifically say there's no Earth 2 Aquaman. <laughs> oh, wow. It's evidence uh, in the forecoming trial. So. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Noah Tornow says, great job, gentlemen. Thanks for inspiring me to read the Dr. Fate story. You talked about what possible influence it had on later Fate stories, and I'm forced to wonder about the character's appearance in the second wave of the Superpowers collection. He always seems like an odd choice to me. An Earth 2 character, not in the JLA, probably only on the DCC list at the time. I always assumed it was just because he had such an awesome costume. Any thoughts? Are you asking me or am I, or is that a dramatic pause? I think I, well, I'm giving you a moment to think about it. I need a moment to think about it too. Like why is Dr. Fate in the superpowers line? It doesn't Two reasons. really make a whole ton of sense. Although just visually he's really cool. There, the, visually is the first reason. Cause it's just a badass look. It really is. But also they needed a magic character. And, uh, if you're balancing mm-hmm. out the powers and everything, you've got the cybernetic kid, you've got the, the kid who, you know, looks like, uh, he's got his head on fire. You got, you know, all the variations. You've got a regular guy who uses equipment. You know, you, if you're covering the rounding the gambit of all superhero types, you gotta have a magician. And Lord knows they didn't think girl toys would sell. No, uh, right. Which no. was stupid, but they didn't. So you didn't get Zatanna. So you go to Dr. Fate and win the DC universe. All right. That makes sense. All right, then we're from Mike Dynas. By the way, so many of these people live in other countries. I keep wanting to say uh, from my JLI podcast, like what? And like Mike Dynas from the Canadian Embassy. I keep having to stop myself. So anyway, Mike says, I agree with everyone about the Dr. Fate first issue special. It's great. It was awesome to see it reprinted here. In fact, after hearing the Fire and Water coverage of the first issue special, uh, back in the end of Vulian, I can't say that word. Antidu- How do you say that word? Antediluvian. Thank you, age. Uh, maybe go out and buy that comic. To whom do I send a kickback to? <laughs> uh, that would be, uh, Kyle Benning and I. He goes, uh, so, alright. Patreon.com slash FW podcast. There you go, yeah. But the truth is, we have now covered the first issue special Dr. Fate comic three times on the network. Kyle Benning and I covered the first time. Uh, Rob and I talked about it in a digest, and then we talked about it in a, um, Marty Pasco, uh, tribute episode. So I've decided, I think we're just going to launch a new show, Rob. I haven't even talked to you about this yet. Uh, it's going to just be called the helmet of, of fate. And it's just going to be every episode is us covering that particular Dr. Fate comic, uh, in different ways every time. Oh, I so thought I mean, we were going to do a panel to panel and just do the story one panel at a time. 
you know, if there's a comic deserving that level of attention, that is one of them. So it's so good. Anyway, uh, Mike says, I would also like to ask why everyone likes Dr. Fate to the extent they do. For me, it's mostly the costume. See, there's our answer. Uh, to point no, uh, Noah Taro mentioned above, he doesn't seem like the main attraction for DC Comics to include in many titles or merchandising. I think I just like this costume so much from the Superpowers action figure, which made me want to hunt down any issues he was in, and the Egyptian mythology from those issues didn't hurt either. Yeah, for me personally, the fascination came from, again, the look. Uh, the magic didn't really mean – I didn't care one way or another about the magic. But the Egyptian stuff and the look really is what drove me to love that character at first. I didn't get – other than Firestorm, I didn't get any of the original superpowers characters when they came around. I bought my – the ones I own, I bought years later, uh, like in resale. And I bought a Dr. Fate, and I <laughs> – I'm a little embarrassed. No, I'm a lot embarrassed, but I used to carry him around in my pocket. Like, I thought he looked so boss. <laughs> and this is when I'm like in college, dude. You know, this isn't even like a kid. Like, Eternity! I would actually. Right. <laughs> I'd work in the comic shop, and, I, and, and it's the 90s, so I'm wearing a t shirt, and over the t shirt, I'm wearing an unbuttoned. You know, a button-up shirt that's not buttoned because that's the way you did it, right? And it'd be like a button, it'd be like a button-down shirt with a with a pocket. So I would actually have Doctor Fate sitting in the pocket with like his little arms hanging outside the pocket <laughs> while I'm working at a comic shop. So I'm probably wearing like I don't know a death T-shirt with a with a blue and white stripe button-down shirt with Doctor Fate hanging out of my pocket with like a big dangly earring and long bangs and yeah, it was um. It was the 90s. What can I say? <laughs> Pocket full of kryptonite. Pocket full of Dr. Faye. But anyway, so yes, I think it comes down to the costume and the G- Egyptian stuff for me. What about you? What, what do you like about Dr. Faye? I mean, yeah, I mean, it is. It's power set, the costume. I, I already talked about I stuttered earlier how much I love her too. So he was part of that group. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of it. I hate to say a lot of it really is that costume. That helmet is so ridiculously cool. I love his his headquarters. He lives in that, you know, that thing. Oh, yeah. A tower in Salem that doesn't have a door. You knock on the brick and it just eats you up. And inside he has a super hot wife. I mean, like, what's not to love? It's just a great, great, great character. I don't understand why we've never gotten a straightforward Kent Nelson series you know and we talked about this before on on various things and and um ryan even talked about it quite a bit in that secret origins redux but like you know we've gotten all kinds of dr fate series but never a straightforward kent nelson as dr fate ongoing you know i think that would be the most successful version and that's the version they've never done Mm -hmm. so uh, anyway, then we heard from Lizanne Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says uh, about the JSA, uh, the classic um, uh, stream of ruthlessness story. Uh, Liz says it was a good reprint, but I think it was a planned one. Like Roy wanted to do the story that they, and told them his plan, and this was reprinted to remind the readers. So when the continuation happened, this would be fresh in the reader's mind. And, of course, Liz is referring to the Infinity Inc. story, which picked it up. So, yeah, it, it probably was carefully orchestrated. You're probably right. Uh, we got a comment from Mark Baker Wright uh, from the Black Rocks Toy Box, and he says, thanks for including the three filler pages in your gallery post. They were the only parts I couldn't catch via the DC Universe app. What, did they take them out? Uh, well, no, the, the Digest isn't on the app. Uh, and so those pages appeared in whatever, like we said, Adventure Comics or, or World's Finest. Oh, the I only guess place so. to find. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. absolutely. Oh. And and of course, Mark, as, as I said, they'll be uh, entered as Exhibit A in when we finally have the Earth 2 Aquaman lawsuit. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, or the lack of Earth 2 Aquaman. Then we heard from Eric, 
from the fish flavored baseball bat blog, which is just the craziest name. Eric says, I'd like to suggest another digest that could be covered on a future episode. If you can get a hold of a copy, Archie's superhero comic digest magazine number two. Uh, and he says, I remember getting this digest in my childhood and I remember it so vividly due to the jarring change in tone between stories. There were, re- there were reprints of mighty comic stories from the 1960s with Jerry Siegel trying too hard to mimic the Marvel style. And then there was a couple of fun pure heart of the powerful and super teen stories with Archie and Betty as superheroes. And then there was a new black hood story with Neil Adams art where the hero fails and the hostage is brutally murdered. Hey, spoilers. Um, and the shift from Archie-style humor to gritty realism was a real shock for this young reader. There was also a cool fantasy story from Wally Wood, as well as stories from Gray Morrow and Al McWilliams. So there's quite a bit of interesting material. Wow, Eric. I mean, thank you so much for pointing that out. Now, about, I don't know, four years ago, Rob told me we were going to cover this digest. So I went out and bought it, and it's sitting on my shelf. I have it, uh, waiting for us to cover it someday. Uh, and, but it just kind of fell to the wayside with uh, more exciting things like Transformers. Uh, but, <laughs> but your description here, man, Neil Adams, Wally Wood, Gray Morrow? I mean, dude, I think we need to dig into this sometime soon. It's, it's a very cool book, uh, that's for damn sure. Yeah, so um, you know what? Uh, thanks for refreshing our memories, and that may happen. Um, you know, it's not the next one, but it may happen soon. We got a comment from Martin Grave, the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. He says, "Thanks for coming back to us. I don't have this issue. It sounds tremendous. That Golden Age story would be new to me. I've never even read the Infinity Inc. sequel. Uh, is there really not a uh, two trade? Uh, I have the Super Squad stuff. There was a fun energy to those issues." It seems weird, though, that everyone just took Karen's word for it straight away that she was who she said she was. She might have been the dastardly. She might have even been the dastardly brainwave. Uh, that cover is rubbish. The dull logo doesn't help. But heroes holding up old covers was a bit of a thing with the Silver Age Giants. It's likely a holdover from that. Make a good point about questioning, uh, not questioning Power Girl. But to be fair, she could crush them like a peanut. Uh, and so they, you know, they probably weren't going to argue with her too much. And they were staring at her boobs as well. So oh, my God. So, uh, <laughs> you know, okay. hey, there was a bunch of guys on the team. You know how guys are. So, okay, so now we're going to move on to the feedback from the Zorro episode that we did in August, part of our Zorro month. So the first comment we got off the website is from Mike Dynas. He says, hooray, Digest cast is back. This was a great episode to shine a light on a Digest that isn't from Marvel or DC. I want to say right up front that I fully agree with Rob that I feel more companies should make more comics. It's great that there are different options out there, such as Nancy Drew and Zorro, and it's not just superheroes. This is me getting on my soapbox here. Feel free to ignore. But as much as I love superhero comics, comics are a medium and not a genre. Uh, There should be a variety of different stories and a variety of different subjects in a variety of different formats. It's great that these swashbuckling digests exist. Though I don't own them, I would very much like to hunt them down based on your discussion. They sounded like lots of fun. Well done, gentlemen. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you, Mike. Awesome, Mike. And if you like different formats uh, or styles of storytelling, Mike, and since we're talking about paper cuts, definitely check out Only Living Boy and Only Living Girl. They are not straightforward superhero stories at all. There's a lot of fantasy elements to it, and um, it's super fun. Then we heard again from uh, Edo Bosnar, whose name I probably just said wrong again. Uh, he says, I knew McGregor wrote a bunch of Zorro and the related Lady Rawhide comics for the tops in the 1990s, but I had no idea about these or that they were reprinted in Digest. And naturally, I found myself doing some searches for them immediately after listening to your episode. Otherwise, though, I have to say I'm a bit miffed at all the dissing at my, of my man McGregor's writing. Looks like some people just want to look at pretty pictures. <laughs> well, you know, I, we, you got to understand, we do like McGregor's writing. I think we were, I think we did say a lot of nice things. We just did 
comment that he tends to use more words than he probably needs to. Yeah, fair enough. I I, I don't do we, were we that. Not yeah, I really, I, really I, I re-listened to it today while I was mowing the grass. We definitely talked about it. Oh well, no, but I mean, I I don't know. I didn't think we were that harsh. Jeez. Okay, maybe we were. Sorry about that. We love Don McGregor. Uh, <laughs> comment from Chris Franklin from our network. He says, "Add me to the list of those who didn't know these existed." I'm not sure the manga art would do much for me. I'm one of those people who honestly isn't much of a fan of that particular art style, but the stories sound intriguing, even though they do sound a bit formulaic, but not Zoro formulaic. It almost seems like the Zoro version of the outlaw Josie Wales, with Zoro picking up stray and random characters and absorbing them into his story along the way. Shag, maybe you and Bob can cover yeah. the third volume next year. <laughs> I bet you can get George Romero and Brian monthly to participate, maybe even Piscoid, signed Chris Williams. Yeah. Yeah, it's because I accidentally called him Chris Williams because we were talking so much about the uh, Disney Zorro show, and it conflated his name and the star of the Disney show to Chris Williams. So, and then we, then we just kept running with the gag. <laughs> All right, uh, then we hear from Adam Ackerman. He goes by Centaurin, and uh, you know we should still call him Chris Williams. I think we should. Anyway, I like it. Uh, <laughs> so we're Adam. Now, you know, here's a little inside baseball for you guys. On Facebook, uh, we have a, a message thread where we communicate about just procedural stuff about the network. Uh, hey, who's releasing an episode? What's this? What's this? You know, uh, what when are we Ryan, getting rid of Ryan? You what, know. what show did Ryan cancel this week? Anyway, <laughs> and um, it, we were joking about what to call ourselves. And Chris said, and this is like, I don't know, what, four, six years ago, whatever. Chris says, call me El Conquistador. And so I changed his name in the group to El Conquistador. And it's still El Conquistador all these years later. Uh, so I don't even know if Chris realizes that or not. So anyway, I take great pleasure in it. All right, so we heard from Adam Ackerman, and he says, historically speaking, you were accurate and inaccurate at the same time. It is true that Wyoming, and this is where the Yellowstone caldera is, was not part of what became the state of California, obviously, and what is thought of as Spanish California. However, it is the case that at the time of Zorro, it was in the territory of Alta, California, uh, that held that was held by Spain. Alta California actually held all of the modern U.S. states of California, Nevada, and Utah, and parts of Arizona, Wyoming, Colorado, and New Mexico. So it's highly probable that all of this took place in the Spanish territory, but we'd need a map to be sure. Wow, I did not realize all of that. I I didn't know about Alta California. I think that was one of those uh, search engines back in the 90s, though, wasn't it? Uh, then we, <laughs> thank you, Adam. Then we're from Captain Entropy one more time. And he goes, thanks to Shag's memory of the death of Captain Marvel, which was, I talked about the trade paperback. I will forever associate Ritz Bits crackers with the tragic, lingering, painful death of Captain Marvel. Uh, given what carbs do to my middle aged dad bod, this association may be a good thing. <laughs> Uh, glad we could help out Captain Entropy. And I will never tire of that, that shock of the Captain Marvel, death of Captain Marvel story coming upon that Ritz Bits ad. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Now, remember, this was just digest size feedback for the digest cast. We don't do all these shares and thank you, but you can find us on social media. You can go out to the Firewater Podcast Network on Facebook, or you can find us on Twitter as the digest cast. So please share your thoughts or go out to our website. What's the website, Rob? Firewaterpodcast.com. Perfect. And we will, uh, we'd love to hear your feedback on this, uh, on this issue and, uh, uh, all about the Blue Devil story. Hint, hint. So, Rob, this was my pick. Um, what is your pick? And Rob has changed our shared document since <laughs> I looked at it last. <laughs> That's very so, interesting. So I decided we're going to rip the bandaid off here. And for next episode, we are in fact going to cover Archie Superhero Comics Digest Magazine number two. 
Oh my gosh! Okay, featuring Steel Sterling, The Fly, Black Hood, and many other characters that no one remembers anymore. Oh, this is fantastic! Well, Eric, all credit to you for uh, getting because this is not what was originally planned no, for next episode. No, I decided let's just do it now. This is really going to be this might be the episode that breaks Digest Cast because I don't think any of these stories are available digitally. Oh, so yeah. you and I are going to have to actually read the digest, which is, you know, hard to do because I'm an old man now and my eyesight is going. I'm like Mr. Magoo sometimes. So that's going to be hard, but we're going to try. We're going to try. I just I, I use reader. Should... I use readers when I read the digest. I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So we'll, we'll give it a shot, everybody. I mean, I don't know whether we will. We'll, We'll be able to get scans of this to put it. Yeah, on well, there there may not be an image gallery when we get to that. Right. One. Yeah, but, I don't know. We'll have to see what we can do. But but we're going to try. We're going to try and cover this this uh, very obscure Archie deck. So I, everyone uh, that you can hear that that's everyone racing to eBay to order themselves a copy so they can keep up right there. That's what that noise. That's what the, that was. That shot in the air. But uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I just hope their quality is better than Marvel. You know, for their digest. Let's hope. All right, folks, uh, we've already told you where to leave your feedback. We've already told you where to find us on social media. That's really going to do it. And, Rob, uh, any parting wisdom for uh, such a great collection and, and, and memories on 1984? <laughs> wow, you put me on the spot here. I, no, I, I have no parting wisdom to, to give to anybody. Other than, as always, remember, big things come in small packages. Really needs you.